0: Well, welcome to, uh, this, is, this is Coffee With. Um, we haven't done Coffee With in a long time. And so long, in fact, that it feels like most of you have never been to a Coffee With event. Um, this started a number of years ago now. Uh, maybe, gosh, 2012-ish we started doing, it was Coffee with Ed, and it was all with with Bishop Ed. And it was basically a space for our young adults where we were welcoming in difficult conversations, hard questions, and just processing some of these things and finding out where people are at and hopefully offering some hopeful ways to think about things. And so nothing has really been off the table for us. I think the last time you and I sat down for a Coffee With event, was um, about hell.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. We used to have topics like sexuality, the rapture, and hell. Yeah. And tonight you have to talk about my book. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk about beauty. Quite, <laughs> um.
0: <laughs>
1: quite a, a shifting gears. But yes, yeah. hell yeah. was the topic.
0: So historically, this was coffee with Ed, and he was kind of the the MC, and we would occasionally bring in some other voices. Uh, Father Chris, Doctor Chris, was one of those voices who occasionally sat in, and then eventually this just turned into coffee with whoever we could find to actually sit down and have a conversation with us. So welcome. I'm, uh, I'm really glad you're all here, and this is kind of our relaunch of the coffee with conversations. Um, this certainly won't be the last one. Um, and this one is also, as as Chris already mentioned, a little unique, in that we're not really addressing a, a specific topic. We're not really asking people to come up with a bunch of questions and uh, things that they want to talk about tonight necessarily. So much as we have something in mind that we want to talk about, and that is Chris's book, All Things Beautiful. I had to make sure there weren't like uh, like cup rings on my book <laughs> because I have I have a lot of little sticky hands in my house. I actually couldn't find my copy of this for a number of days because Rowan had ran off with it somewhere. Nice. But it's it's in one piece and in pretty good shape. Um, so All Things Beautiful, your latest book that you've put out. Um, first of all, an aesthetic Christology is a pretty packed full subtitle that I had to look up at least one of those words. Um, So talk us through two of them. I'll let you guess which ones. ones, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And this is a different book for you. I mean, most of what you've written and what I've read of what you've written is more academic. Uh, Is written for the academy, not so much uh, to be really widely consumed. But this is different. Um, So talk to us a little bit about first of all why it's different, how it's different and then why you felt like it was important to write something like this, and then we'll actually get into some of the content.
1: Yeah, it it is, uh, hopefully, we'll see if I get it done or not. At the current rate, it might not. But this, this is supposed to be the first of a trilogy engaging what are called the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. And this is about beauty, that's what aesthetics is, the kind of, the study of the beautiful. And so you'll, the first, The first book is really asking the question about what's the relationship between christ and the beautiful the second book which i've started on but have not finished is a study of christ and the good and then the last book will be a study of christ and the truth and you know each of them will have an an equally pretentious title so it'll be (laughs) a subtitle i mean so this one is an aesthetic Christology, the next one is a biblical Christology, and then the last one is a dogmatic Christology, which kind of looks specifically at the truth of Christian doctrine as it relates to Jesus. The middle one, which is probably the one that's going to be the most widely accessible for evangelicals because it's biblical. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a term they know, but it's also a way of reading that they're familiar with. And that is the one that I'm working on now and talking about the ways in which Christ makes the good good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this don't let the pretentiousness of it scare you away. It's really just a reflection on how Christ is related to the beautiful, what, what the beautiful means in light of the story of Jesus.
0: Your pretentiousness never scares me away. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at your pretentiousness. <laughs> it's the more pretentious, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and even the ordering of an aesthetic Christology and not a Christology of aesthetics yes. yeah. matters. Yep. Um, And so even the way in which you're reading beauty into Christ and not Christ into the beauty, um, talk to us about why even the direction of this title is important.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a book about Jesus, really. I mean, it's a book about what we learn about Jesus from paying attention to our movies or films. We can talk about the difference between movies and films. Uh, our, Our novels, our, our stories, our architecture, like our art, like what what does the making of art, the receiving of art, what does it have to say to us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? So, I mean, that, again, in essence, this is, it is a Christology. It's not a book about, it's not a, it's not a book of philosophy, really. It's, it's a devotional book about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Just instead of limiting myself to scripture, I'm also listening closely to movies, films, novels, poems, so on. So it's, I think what's different about it from what I normally write, yeah, is it is, it's not limited to a kind of academic audience, but also the way I went about writing it is not using art to illustrate Jesus, but asking, which is different, right? I mean, we've, we've probably, all of us, grown up around preachers who use kind of pop, culture references in sermons to illustrate something, which is you know, not bad, but that's not what I'm doing here. Here I'm, I'm trying to reflect on what does this film or this filmmaker or this poet or this poem or whatever, whatever piece of art I'm thinking about at the time, what does it have to say to us about who Jesus is directly, rather than not illustrating something else that we've gained some other way, but direct, more directly, what, does this, what is this saying to us?
0: Mm-hmm. And the transcendentals matter, um, this idea of the good, the true, the beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, I told you the story, it was yesterday, a few years ago, uh, some of you know Bishop Mike and Bishop Beth Owen, um, some of my favorite people that uh, live in Oklahoma City. Bishop Mike and Bishop Beth, they, they function as kind of formational bishops for the diocese that we're a part of. And this has been maybe three or four years ago. Um, I, I had written, Something for one of our services, probably a prayer or something that got me in trouble, which I used to do a lot more of that. Um, that pray or get in trouble or <laughs> pray prayers that got you in pray trouble. Pray prayers that get me in trouble. Yeah, you <laughs> um, and so I was, I was getting some some backlash from some of our beloved sanctuarians. And I called Bishop Mike just kind of in this like fog of man, What what do I do here? Like, how do I. Try to navigate some of these these boundaries of like what's appropriate and what's inappropriate and how do you talk about a difficult thing without hurting people's feelings and all of this, and he pointed back to the transcendentals that you know you can you can find whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, and let's celebrate those things because there's at least a sense of agreement that like yes this is good, mm-hmm. yes th- this is beautiful. Um, and if you're doing work that skirts those, that's, I think that's where we get ourselves in trouble oftentimes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, that's the reason the church has for so long like directed our attention to, is it true, is it good, is, is it beautiful? Which there's a, a whole history, right, of how those terms emerge in, in that order. But the you, you can hear it in scripture everywhere too, right? So when Paul is telling people, like whatever things are good, whatever things are true, whatever, things are pure, think on these things, right, like that, he's appealing to this notion that there, there are ways of thinking and talking and acting, there are songs and poems and stories, but there's art that is good and true and beautiful, give your heart and mind to those things, I mean, that that's right there at the heart of our faith, mm-hmm. so I think that's,
0: we're all coming back to that one way or another. Yeah. One of the things, and we haven't even talked about the way that this is outlined, and it's kind of walking us through the, the church's year mm-hmm. and the church calendar, um, which we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I think one of the reasons why, at least for me, that even the, the premise of a book like this was even difficult to get my head around is because my exposure to art actually is pretty limited. Um, I tend to, I mean, forget about like mediums, like I, I, I gravitate toward like narratives that I'm familiar with, yeah. you know, and, and things that are accessible. And this is where we, you know, we were going to talk about the difference between like art and entertainment. I think there's even a difference between art and amusement yeah. and, and that's so much what we default to amusement, those things that we can do without thinking Um, But this is different. I mean, and so when I think about how has the church engaged the arts, I think for most of us, our experience is really almost limited exclusively to music. Maybe to music. And I mean, if we consider like the sermon, a kind of art, right, which I think it is. Can be. I wouldn't have that it always (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm like finger painting, right? And (laughs) (laughs) other people are (laughs) doing something else entirely. Um, But it does speak to the kind of power that the arts have over our shared experiences. I mean, I think this is, again, going back to music. um, If you want to bust things up in a church pretty quickly, like go mess with their music. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of the reason for that is... The music speaks to us and moves us in a way that oftentimes we can't even put our finger on. Oftentimes we can't even find words to say what that music is doing to us and in us. And so when it gets messed with, it's, it's disturbing to us. But again, I think you broaden that scope in this book to this isn't just about music. Um, let's look at paintings. Let's look at films and how those things are engaging us. Um, there's no question there. This is more of an observation, but I, I, th- I think you're right. I, I agree. Thank you
1: It'd be really I'd really it'd be disturbing if, if, that, <laughs> if we didn't agree on that But yes, I do I do agree I, I, So much to say about it though, even though you're not asking a question. I can respond to it. I think one is There's a At least the Pentecostalism that I grew up in and I know not everybody in this room grew up in the same kind of environment that I did but there was a kind of urgency to the spirituality it felt like the world was ending like i can i have so many memories as a kid so many sermons about the rapture and hell and so many the last sermon that i gave here i talked about you know my first the first dream i had that i can now remember that i can still remember was a dream about being left behind in the rapture and i had those those there was a kind of urgency like an apocalyptic threat that I was raised in. There wasn't a time for anything like, like art, like either making it or, or appreciating it. Like that, at least in, in those terms, it, it felt like something we didn't have time for. But I think that there were several things driving that, and it was more complicated than I could have assessed at the time. One is some of that is about class, right? I mean, the Pentecostals that I grew up around were poor lower middle class working types, right? So not only do they live in a spirituality in which Jesus is coming at any moment, and they're convinced of that, right? Like, I think that's, I could be wrong, but my, my sense is, and there's a lot, actually a lot of data to suggest that I'm right about this, but there's, that seems to have changed in my lifetime. Like when I was a kid, the people that I grew up around, everybody thought Jesus was going to be coming back within a couple of years, mm-hmm. five years at the most, right? And 10 years, at the. I mean, I can remember as, uh, there are no children in here, I can remember like as a young child, the first thing I was afraid of was missing the rapture. And then as I got older, I just didn't want Jesus to come back before I got married because mm-hmm. I thought that meant, you know. Yeah, driver's license. Okay, sure. <laughs> right. You're obviously a purer soul than I was. Oh, I'm glad I made that comment just before Zoe walked in. That's my daughter. Um, but there, there, that seems to have like shifted. I don't know what, anybody else's impression is, but that seems to have shifted. And there, there has been research that suggests that somewhere in the 80s, that just died. Like mm-hmm. that sense of Jesus is going to come back at any moment. Like people just got, there's a wonderful poem by A.R. Ammons. Uh, I don't remember when he wrote it, but everybody should look it up. It, it, well, you can't look it up because it's a book-length poem, but in the book-length poem, there's a section, right, about preachers preaching <laughs> about the coming of Jesus. And it's, it's hilarious because he just talks about how as a kid he grew up. Every Sunday the preacher says, Jesus is coming before next Sunday. <laughs> and you can only do that for so long before people are like, ah, you know, I'm getting a little skeptical. Like maybe, maybe, but what if he didn't, right? And somewhere in the 80s it seems, that just finally gave out. Like people just stopped talking like that. And how much... How much of that had to do with like exhaustion spiritually, and how much of that had to do with just economics change for people? Interesting. And so now, they're living in a different world. Like, the future means something different for them now. It's not threatening in the same way that it had been. Yeah. I, don't know all, I don't know all the details, but something shifted there. So I think some of it was driven by art is for wealthy people who have time for that kind of stuff, and art is for people who think the world is gonna last, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's the first thing I would say. The other thing is we were doing artful things, but we would never have called it that, Yeah, right? So we were singing songs that were, were very carefully crafted. I mean, we were singing songs that were not carefully crafted, but I mean, there were all kinds of ways in which artfulness did matter to us, just not under that label,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like there, there, was, there was a way in which, and I, I think this is something that's true about what it means to be human. I mean, more and more every year, You know, we discover older art, you know, art that's 20,000 years old, right? Long before people could write. We see, we have, you know, cave paintings and so on that that show that people were were making art as long as there have been what we think of as humans. So there's something, and there's a poem. I don't know if it's in this book. I think it is in this book. In the book that you wrote? Yeah, yeah, let's see. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to get at in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can I read this? Is it all right to read from my own book? <laughs> Please do. So the, the introduction, I, I, start, I start the book and end the book with a poem that I wrote. Two different poems, mm. both of yeah, which I Yeah, I
0: actually love this. Yeah.
1: And so I'm pointing to making this point um, at the end of the introduction. It goes like this. It, it's relatively brief. I won't keep you here all night with it. Before I wrote these words, before I knew how to write, before my late mother signed my name for the first time to my father's delight, before the Hurrian hymns or the cretic meter, before divorce scripts or gravestones or marriage seals, before tabulations or registries, before the first letters were formed hastily, no doubt, and late at night, before a poet first felt the fevered lack of them, before a scar first marked a slave, a slave, before the first priest first lifted up a sacrifice with her praise, before names summoned either a face or a thing, before the mammoth stalker's first whispered warning, before my first father's first call charmed his lovers in the morning, before the groan of grief, before the squeal of pleasure, before the first predictive gesture, before larynx or teeth, before breath and the bones of the hand, a word was there, just abiding, uncreated, a blessing and not a curse and I give it to you now, at last, like this. So what what I'm trying to do there is essentially start in this moment and work back through human history to the word that is there at the beginning. And what what I'm trying to witness to there is the sense in which I think to be human is to create. Like we are artists, even when what we're saying is we don't have time for that. We're Mm -hmm. going to be artful, we can't not be artful. Because that's just what it means to be human in some way, right? So we we it breaks out of us, right, in spite of everything. So even the people I grew up around who were as lowbrow as it's possible to be, right? We didn't even go to the movies. Like not only did we not watch films, we didn't watch movies, right? Because we we thought all that was worldly. We didn't have time for it, right? Like Jesus was coming. And yet, in the midst of all that, we were singing songs and preaching sermons, telling stories. That were, I think, deeply artful.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons why I think that in the '80s that seems to fizzle out is because this guy wrote a book called "88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen" (laughs) in 1988. 1988. Yes, that's right.
1: I think that was the last, like, you know, wasn't the last book he wrote? It wasn't the last book he wrote. That's right. But there, the the late great Planet Earth. You guys remember this? Like enormous hit. I think what we can see now, looking back on it, is that the the Hal Lindsey book. This one. And like In in the 80s, like you get that kind of last grasp push for that theology. And of course, there are still people who hold to it in some version or another, but it's no longer dominant in the way that it was. It doesn't have the same grip on public imagination that it had at mm-hmm. the time. And I think it's, it's fascinating to think about why, like what, what all shifted. Yeah. So some of the story is economics. I think some of the story is just exhaustion, like growing up. Year after year after year, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, with the same, and not just Sunday after Sunday, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, right? <laughs> like you're you're in kind of constantly in church, constantly getting the pressure of Jesus coming, and eventually it just breaks. Yeah, and uh, and I, uh, that's mostly for the good because I think there was a lot that was really diseased about that way of thinking. Yeah, but there were some good things that were lost in that. Like that, there were ways in which we didn't we didn't necessarily get free of it because we were healed. Yeah. Right? We yeah. just walked away from it because we were tired of being harmed by it, yeah. which is, I mean, I'm glad we're not being harmed by it, but I'm not sure that what we turned to was really any healthier, but that's a, another discussion, another yeah. book.
0: You know, the next book he wrote?
1: No, the 88, no, I don't know. 89. 89, okay.
0: I guess that's, a, if you could keep going with it. I know, why I not? I don't know. How many years did he, do, was it just, uh, just one more? Okay. yeah, yeah. Kind of called the quits after that. <laughs> He should have just
1: doubled down. Like, just kept going. Like 2021 reasons why.
0: <laughs> At some point, that becomes a classic, I guess. If you only knew the cover of that book, so much of what you just said. You can actually flip the book over, and it's another book. Talk oh. about, like, doubling down. Oh, like wow. Like, okay. you literally wrote two books. In I'll one. have to think of that for the second volume. Yeah, here. dropping some, some seeds for you. You mentioned something about... I mean, you were... And this is true of a lot of us, but especially in the tradition you were raised in, that you were doing things that you could consider art, like look back on and say like, yes, that was art. But we would never have called it that. No, We would have called it worship. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that we would delineate, at least, I mean, speaking from my own experiences, the way you would delineate, well, that's not really art. That's worship is really around the issue of consumption like we we think the art is like something that we consume. Well, right, and that when I went to Bible school and we just met tonight, but
1: in the old I went to school. It's now called Southwestern Christian University. When I went there, it was Southwestern College of Christian Ministries. And they did art there too, but it was for evangelistic purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So it was how do we how do we make movies that win people to Jesus? How do we write songs that are secular but they win people to Jesus? I, I mean, that was you know, when Amy Grant crossed into secular music and DC talk and, and all of these kind of Christian pop bands, like there was this raging debate about, I mean, have they lost the faith or are they are they evangelists? Like they're daring to go out there into the world and, mm-hmm. and win people for Jesus. Like that so I do think that we called it worship, but we also called it evangelism. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we thought about art, we thought about either you do it for God alone, right? Or you do it for the world in a way that will kind of hook them. Like yeah. there's a, a secret hidden message.
0: Or third, you see that well, the world has that. We need the Christian version of version. It. Of it. Right.
1: So our kids don't get we, we led astray by it. that.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. No, that, that definitely happened too. In fact, in my house right now, the first novels that I read were Louis L'Amour novels because my grandfather loved them. He had he bought everyone that was available, and I I would read them. But then my mother discovered that there were some unacceptable details in these stories. And so if you were to come to my house, and you're more than welcome after this is over to, to come by, I've got this gina- ginormous tub of Louis L'Amour books. And if you just pick any one of them up and thumb through it, you'll see that there are whole passages that my mother redacted with a black <laughs> marker. <laughs> no idea what's in them, apparently, I mean, those of you who've read the unredacted Louis L'Amour, let me know like, what, what the lurid details are, because there would be, sometimes it would just be a line or two, so I think those were curse words.
0: Sure. right.
1: Uh, that's, you know, that's how I calculated <laughs> it. But then there would be pages and pages. Like, and you're like, plot points were lost. And I know it wasn't the violence because there, were, there was plenty of people plenty killed of that. that she did not redact. So yeah. there was no, there was, there was, she wasn't squeamish about the violence. So it, mm-hmm. had, to be, it had to be something else. Yeah. So anybody who wants to catch me up on if we've got any little more buffs, let, <laughs> let me
0: know. So your, <laughs> the, the comment about violence is actually a great segue. Because I want to talk a little bit about the chapter uh, on Westerns that she wrote. Yeah. And so Phyllis I mean, you're... It's something that's been written about pretty widely, especially as of late. Yeah. Um, Kristen Dumas just wrote yep. Jesus and John Wayne. Yep. Um, and Which I
1: engage a little bit in here. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And I, it, it seems to me, I haven't finished her book yet, but it seems to me that what she's arguing is that the, the evangelical perspective is very much that Jesus... Or, that Jesus is a kind of John Wayne for us, mm-hmm. right? Or that we need to turn Jesus into John Wayne. And that's the image that we've created, and it's the image that we've and that we've become addicted to, yeah. right? And you have a little bit of a different approach. Yeah. As I, I mean,
1: I, you could probably read her book in a couple of different ways because a lot of her book is just kind of reporting on things evangelical leaders have said about masculinity and violence and so on. That's right. So you can read what she's up to in a couple of different ways. But I will say, I think that at least the way her book has been received largely is that evangelicals, at least white evangelicals, are kind of drawn to John Wayne for the same reasons they're drawn to Jesus and Jesus for the same reasons they're drawn to John Wayne. And that they're, they're looking for a kind of man who's willing to do violence against bad people in in the name of defending the weak and the vulnerable, you know, like a kind of that we need strength and to make a show of strength. So I, I think the, and I think that's by and large, right? I mean, again, much of the book is just telling us what was said, right? So, I mean, it's in that way, not a lot to disagree with, but I do think that the account is more complicated than the book suggests and definitely more complicated than, kind of pop perception of the book suggests, in, in, in terms of how Americans and American Christians and American evangelical Christians think about masculinity and violence, I think the story is, is a little more complicated yeah. than,
0: again, than is usually seen. Right. So, so that's one of the directions that you go on your chapter in, on Westerns, is that... John Wayne isn't Jesus and Jesus isn't John Wayne, but we need the John Wayne so that Jesus can be who Jesus needs to be.
1: That's, that's how I think, that's, I think the way the model actually works, right? That, that there's part of the, and here, for those of you who are interested in, in this, there's a, there's a man named Richard Slotkin who's a, a scholar. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he wrote a series of gigantic books um, on the myth of redemptive violence and he kind of traces the history of american storytelling like w- what stories do americans tell about themselves mm-hmm. and makes the case that really these stories are always stories about the frontier the new the the savage land that's conquered by what he calls the the hero or the pioneer hero mm-hmm. who is you know breaking into virgin territory or savage territory and making it safe for people to follow right yeah. and he you know it, again it's a multi-volume series and each book is massive but his the the, the heart of his idea is that americans believe violence is necessary that an, for any good to happen there has to be violence against those who are not good and for any good that has happened there has to be a readiness for violence for that good to stay mm-hmm. And that this is just like built into the American mentality, right? Like that we, we believe violence is good, right? right, or can be. Not that it always is, but that it can be. And I think we, we all sense this and can feel this like at, at, at even the most kind of pop culture level possible. You've seen like the bumper stickers that say only two people have ever died for your freedom jesus and the american soldier like like that kind of sentimentality like that that's the idea right that freedom isn't free well what does it cost well it costs death but not just anyone's death specifically the death of the soldier right the death of the person who's willing to do violence in our name for the sake of for the sake of freedom and that is and I think that it, the Western, what I'm arguing in that chapter, which is the chapter on Epiphany. So I don't know if we, you mentioned it briefly, but let me back up a little bit to say. So the book is arranged around the seasons of the Christian year, starting with Advent, which is the season we're in now, and, and moving all the way to ordinary time. But this chapter, the one that Father Paul has just asked me about, is about Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, which celebrates the baptism of Jesus the transfiguration of Jesus, the moment at which Jesus is kind of revealed to be the savior of all. This is the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And the title of the chapter is The Name Above All Names. And so this, the idea is how do we, how do we name Jesus rightly? And, and then I argue that the Western, and this is true of both like our books, like the Louis L'Amour books, but also our movies. John Wayne is the iconic figure here that those books and movies, those stories, are, are stories that are trying to name something that's essentially American. And this goes, this goes back even to really before the Western to stories about the pioneers, people like Daniel Boone, and historical figures like Boone and David Crockett, but also fictionalized figures like Natty Bompo, who's a part of the leather-stocking novels, The Last of the Mohicans mythology, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all of those stories are centered around a hero, a hunter hero or a pioneer hero who is willing to do violence. And Slotkin picks up on this, and I'm sketching some of it in the chapter, that this is almost always a man, like almost always, almost always a man who's an outsider to every community. So, like, with the Natty Bumpo character who becomes, like in last of the Mohicans movie, Daniel Day-Lewis plays him, the... He's, he's white, mm-hmm. but he lives with the Indians. Right. He speaks their language. Right? They're his brothers. He's blood brothers with them. Right, But when the bad Indians are threatening the good whites, like, that's where he becomes necessary. Mm-hmm. And that becomes like part of the fundamental story that just shows up over and over and over and over again. Right? That you've got this outside figure who's incredibly skilled, He's usually not a true believer. Like one of the things that's fascinating about this is usually this this hero is not a Christian, and he he needs not to be a Christian because he's going to do things for Christians that Christians can't do for themselves. Yeah, because their faith won't allow it. Uh, you guys remember the John Wayne, um, the man who shot Liberty Valance. So in that movie, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart are the are the big stars, and Jimmy Stewart plays this kind of man from the East, very cultured man who comes to the West to kind of bring law and order without violence to this town. And there's an outlaw there who's also played by a super famous actor. His name's slipping to mind right now. But the have any of you seen this? It's an old movie. You should definitely watch it. I'm going to spoil it for you, though, so get ready. <laughs> the,
0: t- it's the, been out long enough. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> like, you don't, you don't, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to spare you the spoiling. But... It, it comes down to, he's just going to, the Jimmy Stewart's character is just going to have to have the shootout with the outlaw, even though he doesn't want to. Lee Marvin. Lee, yes, thank you very much. He's going to have to, I knew it was somebody famous, I, and I couldn't think of who it is. It's, it's terrific, though, uh, movie. And so, but in, in the, the, the decisive moment, John Wayne, who's the good bad guy, or the bad good guy, whichever way you want to put it, actually does the shooting from hiding. Right? So that what people perceive, the public view, is that the good marshal did what had to be done, even though he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to commit violence, but he did to save us from the bad guy. But what was really happening behind the scenes right, is that the bad good guy or the good bad guy was doing the dirty work. Right? Mm-hmm. So jump forward to the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Right. You get that exact same story, the Dark Knight right, of Batman, who... Has to do in the dark, what nobody wants done. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants it done, but it has to be done. Yeah. Right. And and so he's he's the hero. Right. And there's that line in which uh, the commissioner says at the end of the movie, right? He's the hero, not the hero we deserve, but he's the hero that we need. Yeah. Right. We need somebody who will do violence in our name, but not make us accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Right. So the what, what this Part of what this story means is that good bad guy or bad good guy always has to end up in exile. Right? So like Natty Bumpo, the character in the Leatherstocking novels, he dies alone without children and is only honored by the natives. Like the white people that he rescues, they're done with him. He's done his work, Right, he's, he's protected them and now he goes off into oblivion. John Wayne in The Searchers, which I think is kind of the great Western movie, around these themes anyway. Um, Again, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it. But John Wayne plays a former Confederate officer. After the Civil War, he's kind of famously known for his hatred for native peoples and for, for the Indians. And then this young girl gets kidnapped and he gets brought in to rescue her. And part of the drama of the movie is will he actually rescue her or will he just kill her too?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Because the thing he says he hates more than even the reds are the people who are white and then turn, mm-hmm. right? like they're, they're rejecting their own whiteness and he hates them for it. But he does in the end, he does the right thing and doesn't kill her, he brings her back to the family but in this incredibly iconic scene, one of the most famous scenes in American movie history, at the very end of the movie, he brings her home her and her boyfriend, who's going to marry her, and they go up the steps into that ranch house, back to the family, and the camera now is inside, looking out through the door, the open door, and behind John Wayne, you can see like the prairie, like the, the desert, and he walks up the steps and moves toward the door, and then stops, right? So everybody else is in the house, and the camera angle is from in the house, so you and I are in the house too, right? We're looking out with everybody else in the house, rejoicing because the rescue has happened, salvation has come. But we're looking out on the John Wayne who did all of that for us, but he can't come in, and then he turns and walks away, right? And and that door shuts behind him, and that that image like shows up again and again and again and again, right? Um, Before the the latest group of Star Wars movies came out, like the I, I was teaching a class on film and talking about this theme, and I told them that that has to happen to Luke Skywalker next. Like, he has to become, he has to get exiled. like Because in American storytelling, in order to be a hero, you have to do things that are bad. Yeah. But you have to pay for that bad by living and dying alone after that, right? And so, we, I could go on forever about this, so you're gonna have to stop me. But I think that the what it comes down to is, it's kind of been drilled into us that we need Jesus for some things and John Wayne for other things, mm-hmm. right? We need Jesus to save our souls and John Wayne to save our bodies,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? We need Jesus to make sure we go to heaven when we die and not hell. And we need John Wayne to make sure that our kids have a, a future of freedom and not communism, right? We, we need to make sure, or whatever the, whatever the enemy is at the time. We need... Jesus there to forgive us for using John Wayne, but we need John Wayne there when we can turn away from Jesus to say, okay, you're gonna have to do this. Yeah. Right? Like we, we don't want to do this, but it has to be done. Right? And that, so that there's this kind of fundamental conflictedness in us about it. And what it, what it comes down to then is, we, we want to believe that Jesus is always there to forgive the sin of letting John Wayne do that in our name. Now, John Wayne himself cannot be forgiven. Like, right. That's part of the story, is that, that the person who does that does not get reconciled back to the community, mm-hmm. right? It's a scapegoat. Yeah, exactly, they, he, that's precisely right, right? So Jesus is, if you put it in those terms, John Wayne is the scapegoat and Jesus is the lamb. Mm-hmm. And we think we need both, yeah. right? We need the John Wayne figure who will do the stuff that Jesus would never do or if Jesus does it, he does a mile, you know, Jesus may drive people out of the temple, but he doesn't, you know, scalp them when he's done, right? But we do need someone to scalp some people or it's just going to get worse and worse, right? So we, we need a scapegoat and a lamb and we, in part, we need the lamb because of how bad we feel about scapegoating, yeah, right? And so Jesus then becomes a way of redeeming us from that. And yeah, yeah so could go on forever what the way i end the chapter though is by trying to show how the story might work differently like what what are other stories that don't assume that that don't that don't assume that's the way in which justice gets done
0: in the world like what are those stories look and sound like yeah because i mean ultimately those stories start to shape our imaginations and that's how we actually live in the world right so i mean this (laughs) Talking about Westerns, this doesn't just live in our film, right? We yeah. talk about things like capital punishment. Yep. talk about things like bombing civilians with drones halfway around the world. And oftentimes the response from the Christian community is like, has to be done. Um, and so, I mean, these these narratives, these stories, they don't just live in the past. They've actively shaped the way that we engage in the world right now. Yeah. Are you about to read something else to us? Oh, yeah, I was just going to read the end of that chapter, if that's cool for you. Yeah. So,
1: because I, I, want to, I want to be careful here. Look, I hate these kinds of divisions, but I'm going to bring them up just to illustrate a point. Like, the, I, I don't actually think talking about liberalism and conservatism or liberals and conservatives or liberals and progressives as a group and conservatives as a group, I don't think that gets us very far, actually, in... Identifying what's actually happening in the world right those are slogans right that that seem more useful than they actually are right But in general, I think that more and more and more This what I've just sketched is a kind of conservative mindset the the idea of redemptive violence, right? It's not actually true, but that's the way we like to talk For, for instance the when it comes to war capital punishment, torture, etc. if you study that, like political shifts don't actually change any of that. Like, it doesn't really matter who the president is in terms of what our military is doing or how the police force functions or what cap- happens with capital punishment or what's happening in our prisons, right? So actually in the real world, like liberal conservative pol- politics doesn't change much about how violence actually happens on the ground, mm-hmm. right? But in terms of the story we like to tell, it's kind of a progressive virtue to reject violence. Yeah. Like, yeah. Progressives like to think that they don't like violence. Right? <laughs> and conservatives like to think that there is like, something ennobling about a certain kind of violence. Right? So e- again, in reality, it doesn't really matter what the politics are in terms of what actually happens to our kids who go off to war, or the people who are in our prisons, or our police officers. right? but in terms of the stories we like to tell about ourselves like we we like to frame it in in terms of either noble violence right the, the violence of the you know as i someone once told me they they had gone to washington dc and to see like the the memorials there and and the kind of historic sites mm-hmm. and they were just kind of catching us up on it and they said like, that's the holiest place I've ever been. And when I stood at the Tomb of the Unknown sol- Soldier, I had this impulse to take my shoes off because I was on holy ground, right? Like, that, what makes someone tell that story, right? Yeah. Like, how, how do yeah. you, and I say this is you know, was a man whose father was a Marine and, and a police officer, right, so it's not, there's, there's some way in which those things get entangled in a certain way of talking, right? But the problem with kind of the progressive side of that, kind of rejecting violence, is is at least twofold. One is, well threefold, because one, it doesn't seem to actually change anything about what actually happens on the ground, right? Yeah, so right. Talk, no matter what you're saying about violence up here, what's actually happening doesn't change much. Two, even though you're talking about hating violence, I think often it's just, it's kind of cliched and exaggerated so that you're not recognizing the ways in which scripture talks about violence, the way Jesus himself talks about violence. And so you end up, forgive the cliched metaphor, but you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You end up making claims that aren't really Christian. Right? They're just anti-conservative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? They're, they're not really Christian. They're just quote-unquote progressive. And... I mean, Scripture's filled with talk about violence. Now, the question is, what's being said in those passages? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about the wrath of God or the armies of the Lord? You know, so as a kid, the church I grew up in, we we had booster ban on Sunday morning. All the kids, until they were 12, 13 years old, had to go forward and sing. And my father, the aforementioned Marine, was determined that I would do that until the legal age, right? So all the other kids (laughs) up in booster ban were... Four, five, and six, and here, I, and I was roughly the size then that I am now. So I <laughs> didn't have a beard, but otherwise pretty much looked exactly like I do now. So I'm, you know, 12 years old. I'm in the Lord's army, right? Oh, Absolutely. Um, and, and it's the Lord's army, right? It's patterned on the, the patriotism of uh, the great American military, mm-hmm. right? So there's a way in which that stuff gets wrapped up, but when you reject militarism, or you, you know, you become critical, you know, as a progressive, you become critical of you know, the, the the war machine, et cetera. You know, think Woody Guthrie or Bob Dylan or whatever. It's easy to lose touch with the way in which Scripture actually talks about warfare and so on. And I, I think that in the long run that it's up hurting us because there's there is a reason Scripture talks in the way that it does and that Jesus talks in the way that he does. So, the again, like I said, I could talk about this forever. I, I think... We're at a place where we need to find ways to tell different stories, though, mm-hmm. like and and actually change things on the ground, right? right? Not just shift the story so we go home feeling better, but what do we do that actually changes the way? I mean, just just this afternoon, Father Tanner, Father Kenneth Tanner, sent me sent me and some others of us a text about a school shooting in his town, mm-hmm. and he was called, you know, while it was still an active shooter situation as a priest to be there for the victims. If I remember rightly, three kids were killed and eight more were wounded with you know, some 15-year-old kid yeah. shooting them down. Yeah. And that, like, what, what should matter ultimately to us is not just the stories we tell, but how do we, how do we address that? How do we address it so that no more kids get shot at school by other kids? Mm-hmm. Like what, that's, that's what really should matter to us as both as Christians and as Americans and as humans. But I do think telling different stories is a way to get at some of that. And so that's what I'm trying to get after in the end. I give it like four different stories that I think kind of work differently. Um, but let me just read the last part about Jesus.
2: Um,
1: Well, I don't know if I can read much of this without you having read the other chapter, but I will just this line and then I'll explain uh, kind of how it works. As Samuel Wells explains, heroes are the center and circumference of their stories and their stories are always stories of triumph and glory. The hero may fail, but he knows no repentance. So the hero is always the center of the story and the story is always a story of triumph and and the hero knows no repentance saints by contrast live in a story that's not their own they're less admirably they're less admirable than heroes but more honest just so their many failures are graced opening out on the cycle of repentance forgiveness reconciliation and restoration that christians recognize as the pattern of life god's death makes possible this is at the heart of the faith christians have received in what christ suffered God has made it possible for even heroes, those whose lives are lived in total opposition to the spirit and the kingdom of God, to become saints. So like what I'm arguing here is we need to tell stories of saints, not stories of heroes. Yeah. And as long as we keep telling stories about heroes, we're going to keep getting this idea that some violence will save us, right? Yeah. That just a little bit more violence and we'll finally break through, Right? The war that will finally end all wars, right? The torture that will free us from all threats or whatever the case might be, right? Yeah. And so that the, and, and it is strongly worded, right? I'm arguing that a hero is someone whose life is lived in opposition to the spirit, right? You can't be a hero and be obedient. Yeah. You can be a saint, but you can't be a hero. And I think the, that, that's the shift that has to, that has to happen.
0: Yeah. I'm still going through the words of uh, the Lord's Army song in my head. <laughs> I
1: may never ride in the infantry, but I'm in the Lord's Army. March in, march Marching in infantry. Marching infantry. Ride in the cavalry.
0: Ride in the cavalry. Shoot the artillery. I may never fly over, over the, the enemy. enemy. This, this is the but. <laughs> right. Not right. because. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Like, I'll never do those things because I'm in the Lord's Army. It's right. like, oh, I kind of wish I will do those things someday. But even if I don't. You know, the, you know the root of all that, and this is a
1: fascinating part of the history too. The reason that's being said is I will not be able to fight for my country in that way, but I can do it through prayer. The reason it's phrased that way is to say I'm too young. Remember, it's children singing children this. I'm too young to fight in the military. I can't fly the plane or shoot the artillery, but I can pray for my country to win. That's what that song is about. Yeah. And it is... Like, that's a World War II sensibility. That's not just American. I mean, like, for instance, C.S. Lewis, you guys know C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity, he was asked, you probably know this, that that book began as a series of talks on the BBC. Do you know who asked him to do that? The British government. Do you know why they asked him to do it? For morale during the war. (laughs) The purpose of that book the reason it's mere Christianity is what unites us as British people against the threat of our enemies is something that's basic to all of us. It's a kind of Christianity that makes our nationalism possible. Right? So the Lord's Army song is kind of a lowbrow, low church version of, the mere, of mere Christianity. But this is a, like that, you can't tell the story of the UK or the US without telling that story about how being Christian serves being American or being Christian serves being English, et cetera, right? Yeah. So when, when those things come into conflict, people don't know what to do. I remember when I, you may think that, that I'm somewhat provocative, but I assure you, if you knew my dad, I would strike you as Barnabas, right? <laughs> like, like, or, or even Jesus. Maybe. <laughs> um, I, I'm quite, and Zoe can testify, like m- my dad taught Sunday school, and I remember I was really young, I don't know, teenager. Um, dad, again, who was a Marine and a cop, taught one Sunday, and I don't know what the topic was, but somehow it came up about the difference between being Christian and being American, and he barely made it out of the church alive. Right? Like, like he barely made it out alive. And it was because the, the people in that room, they couldn't conceive that there was a difference. Right? That there, there, To be Christian was to be an American. To be an American was to be a Christian. Right. And the, the idea that there might be ways in which your patriotism and your faithfulness would be at odds with each other was just unthinkable. Right? And, and so as silly as it is, that's what that song is about. It's about... I have a kind of Christianity that is patriotically useful,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? My Christianity prepares me to be a good citizen. And I think that a lot of our churches did do that, did, did do that very well. Like we, we discipled people into a certain kind of Americanism, mm-hmm. and depending on what our social class was, we discipled them into different kinds of Americanism, right? So some of our churches discipled people into consumerism, like America, to be American is to go shopping the day after 9-11, right? But some of our churches discipled people into militarism, Mm -hmm. and to be American is to put your life on the line, right? And so I hope no one's hearing what I'm saying, uh, something that's anti-patriotic or or, uh, arguing that Christians cannot be of good to their country. But I am saying it's far more complicated than we've often allowed. Right? Yeah. That, that there are ways in which there, uh, certain conflicts can and do arise about where, in your loyalties. And I don't think we've done a good job of negotiating what do you do when that happens, mm-hmm. right? Uh, just this week I've been working on a, a, a book and I'm looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sermon. So Bonhoeffer, of course, is born in Germany. He comes to the US and studies. He goes back to Germany and then from Germany to the UK for a couple of years and pastors some churches there in London. And then he goes back to Germany. So when he comes back to Germany, he preaches a sermon on Memorial Day in Germany. And it's in, in, in his lifetime, what was remembered on Memorial Day primarily were the dead from World War One, mm-hmm. And he's, he preaches, it's one of the longest sermons we have from him. I mean, he, I, it was a long sermon. I mean, he preached a long time. On Memorial Day, about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a German on a day like this, right? And it's, it's, I think he strikes exactly the right tone because he says, you know, as a German, there is a part of me, uh, this patriotic part of me that responds to these stories. And I want, as a German, I want to say these things. I feel them, right? I feel like that kind of pride in my country, the agony for what was lost, right, all this. He's like, but as a Christian, there are things I am not allowed to say. I'm not allowed to say. And there are things that I'm forced to say that I don't want to say, right? So like you can, like in this sermon, you can hear him like struggling with that. Like I, I want to make these claims about my country, but I, kind of, I have to remember God is the God of all the nations, not just the God of Germany, mm-hmm. right? And it's, what's striking is that that sermon, which was 1935, you realize that he's, he doesn't know it, we can tell now, It's that insight that's gonna protect him when Nazism rises and most German Christians just go with the flow. Like, overwhelmingly, and you all know this, but like, I mean, overwhelmingly, 99% of German Christians just went with Nazism. Many of them, a huge number of them, knew that Hitler was wrong. Like, they had no confusion about what was wrong with him. But they had so aligned their Christianity with their Germanness that they could not figure out a way to resist Hitler without destroying their country. So we've got all of these examples of people who are anti-Hitler, but pro-German, and therefore serve in the Nazi army. They serve in concentration camps. And their rationale is, we're not doing this for Hitler, we're doing this for Germany. But what they're doing is exactly the same as what any other Nazi would do, right? How does that happen? And what protected Bonhoeffer from that was that insight, right? But it wasn't some kind of cheap anti-German sentiment. It wasn't like he was simply, you know, a man of the world, and so he had no regard for Germany. Like, he felt the the pain of it, but he also knew what it meant to bear his cross. So I think that's... no matter who you are, no matter where you live, I mean, this is just as true in Botswana as it is in Germany or the U.S., right? Yeah. We, we just yeah. happen to live here.
0: Right, right. I don't know how we got here.
1: To Botswana or
0: to the U.S. or to this part of the conversation? This part of the conversation. Oh. <laughs> it's about art. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we're supposed to be talking about like movies and paintings. Yeah, and we're so like, yeah, violence in Botswana is like way over the top.
1: <laughs> I, I will, I, last thing I'll say about this and then you can just shift the gears. Yeah. Is, you know, in terms of movies, like, what style of movie has dominated the last five to ten years? Like, they're really, the big movie companies are only making one kind of movie. It's all superhero movies. It's all superhero movies. And all superhero movies are this story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I've already mentioned Batman, but they're all this story, right? Yeah. And Superman is, is told as a kind of counter to all this, right, literally a god, right, and who, does, who will not kill, right, but saves us anyway, but what does it, it cost him, right? And that's we could go on forever about it. But I mean, it's it is once you realize this, once you recognize the pattern of the story, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. Yeah. Like it's in all of our films, it's in all of our all of our pop culture, it's in our
0: songs, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um. I know where I want to go next. I'm not exactly sure how to get there without just like really grinding the gears. (laughs) That's fine. That's perfectly, I don't think anybody minds. No. How are you guys doing? This is, it's a lot. Um, I think it was, uh, we don't want to hear these kinds of stories, right? I mean, the reason why the popular narrative isn't what you're talking about is because they're stories that are not sexy. They're not heroic in the sense that mm-hmm. draws... Like stories from. of saints is over again, stories absolutely, of saints. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think about that quote, I think it was from Gandhi, who said something to the effect of, like, oh, we'll have victory, but only when rivers run red with blood. And he yeah. says, but the blood will be ours. Yep. Like, that's not a story we want to tell. Mm. Um, That's not a story that like wins wars. (laughs) Oh,
1: this is completely beside the point, but I have to tell it because I love it so much. So speaking of Gandhi, Mm -hmm. so Howard Thurman, who was a mentor for Martin Luther King Jr. went to to India a few times to meet with Gandhi. And one of the times that he went, he took a group of his students with him, Thurman did. And they're meeting with Gandhi, listening to him talk for hours about this, about nonviolent resistance and how to bring How to bring peace without killing your enemies. And at the end of it, Gandhi says, before you leave, I have a request of you. And they're like, what could Gandhi want from a group of African-American theology students? And he's like, I've heard tell, I've heard people talk about a song you sing in your churches. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Will you sing it for me? And so here they are, somewhere in India, and this group of African American theology students and their professor start singing, "Were you there when they crucified my Lord?" And the reason I the reason I want to mention that is that that's a kind of art that's about sainthood, not heroism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And of course, everybody knows, right? That's a, that's a song that arises out of black experience. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's a song about recognizing the freedom that comes in the death of Jesus, not the death of Jesus' enemies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is, I don't think it should ever be lost on us that that's, that's the art that came, not the only art, certainly, but it's iconic to the black experience in America. Um, that what came out of the experience of the black community in slavery and then Jim Crow and everything that's followed Jim Crow has been a kind of art that's mostly about suffering with Jesus. It could have been so many other ways. Like, like, instead of a history, I mean, um, I just forgot his name. It'll come to me in just a second. But his, his dad was a preacher here in Tulsa. He's now a, a famous professor and philosopher. I don't know why his name has slipped my mind. I can see him. He always dresses in black and the, where's the, like the... Uh, Cornell West. Cornell West. I kept thinking Carlton Pearson for some reason. And I don't know, like, Cornell West and Carlton Pearson are not the same people. But... Uh, Yeah, Cornel West. So Cornel West has said, he's the one who brought my attention to this very point. And he said, in many places in the history of the world, when you have oppression like that, like chattel slavery and then Jim Crow, what emerges is terroristic backlash. You get a culture of terrorism in which the oppressed people terrorize the oppressors, right? Bombings and assassinations and so on. But that what came out of black experience was mostly peacemaking, lament, praise, Art. dance, and this whole artistic tradition that becomes jazz, mm-hmm. right? The Palms blues. Yeah. Like, it's, it's astounding testimony to the power of the story of Jesus as bringing freedom. Yeah. Right? That and we're, we're not, this is not fatalism, right? To tell the story of Jesus' death is not to tell the story of the powers win the end. It's not fatalistic or nihilistic. The, this, the power of Jesus' story is, this is how real freedom comes, right? And, and that is, a thousand years from now, when people talk about America, that's what they're gonna tell. When Christians think back on the American experience, this is what they're gonna remember, is that there were people who knew the power of the cross. And this, this brings me back to that point about there is a kind of violence in the story of Jesus. It's a violence that does destroy sin in saving the sinner. So, I mean, that's, but only God can do that. Like, only God can destroy all that is diseased and wicked and save those who were diseased, right? We can kill the sick, but the sickness remains. God can kill the sickness, right? And, and that's what the story of Jesus is about, Right? yeah and the you know, like the, the the woman caught in the act of adultery, right if we had had our way, we would have just killed her, and she would have died in her sins. What Jesus does is kill the adultery,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right go and sin no more you 're free of that right like this you 're liberated from it so the, I, I think we do need to realize that God is a, a man of war it 's just what he 's at war with is not what we 're at war with, yeah right? his ways are not our ways, and I think that 's that's a, like, we don't want to lose touch
0: with, with that language. Yeah, yeah. I had my little preaching jump that, like, I was going to launch into something. Oh, stand. yeah, yeah, it'll we'll do it. Uh, well, I, well, the moment's kind of passed. Sorry But that. that's okay. Um, one of the things that you were talking about with, with what has risen from, I mean, mostly the black experience in America, and I think it's so fascinating that whether you're talking about the blues, talking about the art, talking about the music, uh, jazz, that so much of that happened just in the same way that we talk about uh, in the Westerns, where it's always an outsider. Yes. But they were also outsiders. I mean, yeah. you look at any of the paintings of a place like Congo Square mm. uh, out in New Orleans. Yeah. And what you see in all these paintings is Congo Square. You see people dancing, playing music. And in the background is like the ramparts. Mm. And in the background is the cathedral and like where all of the city life is happening they have to meet out there because they're not allowed in Mm -hmm. but they're taking that experience and rather than turning it into a kind of violent backlash they turn it into a different song right Um, Congo Square is still it's legitimately more sacred than your friend who went to (laughs) (laughs) right yeah well I think as Christians right the sacred
1: is that which Jesus has made possible Right. That which is Jesus. Jesus has made possible. And so the I think our stories should should reflect that. I mean, I don't think that's the only kind of story you can tell. I, I don't sure. I don't mean that in that sense. But I do think in, in terms of the stories we tell and celebrate as Christians, we need to think more about that shift from st- stories of heroes to stories of saints.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for about an hour. Um, I want to leave a little bit of time for some questions or if anybody wants to steer this conversation in a particular direction, if you've read Chris's book and you're like, I can't figure out this thing, now is a great time uh, to ask some of those. Um, one thought, and I wanted to get your two cents on this. It, it, it feels to me, and I'm, I'm sensing this uh, just even in my own life, and in my own world, that um, I feel like it's something of what you're, you're saying and pointing to, and I, I want to get your feedback. I'm somebody who I've kind of rejected, not rejected, but I've strayed away from things like fiction uh, Hmm. in my reading, like novels Or like, yeah, maybe if I I ever have time, like I'll do that. But in the meantime, I've got to do like this real work of reading my theology books. Um, But recently, especially, there's been this shift where I'm like, I, I have to read some other kind of story. Yeah and I'm finding more and more in these stories, and I am in like, the theology book, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and my, well, what I'm sensing is that part of that, that feeling is the, the theology books, we work so much in abstraction, mm-hmm. and we have to talk in kind of generalities, right? So we use phrases like the marginalized yep. when we talk about theology. Yep. But something that art does is it tends to... Reject or at least resist those kinds of abstractions, and start to move in on particularities. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's dealing with,
1: you know, particular people, particular events. Right. right. It's kind of requiring you to see someone rather than to again think in ab abstractions. I think the. So, um, Martin Buber, who's a Jewish philosopher in and around the Second World War. I mean, he had a long career, but he has, he wrote a book called *I and Thou, which made him really, really famous. But he he has this passage in one of his books where he's talking about the, the ways in which we, when you have what he calls false prophets who serve what he calls the politics of illusion. So he says that there are politicians who are always dealing in illusions, and they have their prophets who do their work for them. And he, he gets this from Jeremiah 28, which is a story of a, a false prophet named Hananiah. Well, a false prophet is a little bit misleading because he's not, he's not so much like, false as serving the wrong ends. He's not true in the way that Jeremiah is true. So you should all go and read this story. Um, you can read it right now if you don't want to listen to me. But the, it's, there's this showdown right, between Hananiah and Jeremiah, and Hananiah takes a yoke and breaks it and prophesies that God is gonna break the yoke of Babylon from off of Israel's neck. And he like, challenges Jeremiah who's been prophesying that God says that you're gonna be put under the yoke of Babylon and you're not to resist it. Go into the land and submit. Build houses, plant vineyards, raise families. Mm-hmm. You're going into captivity. Deal with it, right? That's yeah. Jeremiah's message, yeah. right? And Hananiah is like, no, that's not what God wants for you. And he like breaks this yoke, which I mean, I'd like to know his trick, because that's a pretty
2: that's, incredible. that's a pretty impressive <laughs>
1: and pretty impressive show. And and what's astounding is Jeremiah does not respond. Original power team. Yeah, the original power team. Thank you for that image. Now I'm seeing him in a leotard. <laughs> yeah. Right? So and I is there in his leotard, he breaks the he breaks the the yoke, and Jeremiah does not say anything. He doesn't respond. He just walks away. And then later the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and I'll, I won't spoil that. I'll let, you, I'll let you read it. But what Buber says is that this is the way in which false prophets always serve illusions in politics. They make a show of strength and they use slogans. I'll let that set in for just a moment. That you know a false prophet this way, he says. They're, they're doing their show of strength in ways that serve politicians who are by, by appeals to slogans, they don't talk specifics and they don't understand the humility of weakness they don 't understand that our God is Jesus, our God is the one who dies, not the one who kills and that, that and he 's not a Christian, but he has this like deeply Christian insight about what what it is that the people of God actually believe about God, and what it is about being about being true, and I think art at its best shatters slogans, mm-hmm. right? It it forces you to see a particular person, and then it complicates it, like it, you may it makes you think um, you know where this is going to end, and then it suddenly doesn't end there, right? And th- I mean that's what makes something artful rather than just amusement. Yeah, right. Yeah. Back to you know the original distinction that you brought up, like if. Sometimes you just want to wanna go and see a movie and you want to know how it ends, right? Like there's a way in which you, you want to go see a movie in which a good bad guy kills all the bad guys and the good guys have peace at the end, right? Because we've been conditioned to, that, that kind of story is home for us, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a, like the food we eat or, the, or the, tone, the tones that we recognize as music, all that. I mean, that's just basic to us. So I'm, I'm not criticizing that out of hand but you can never think that that's somehow true (laughs) that the world actually works that way Mm -hmm. and I think that the Christian stories and and stories that are told truthfully whether they're Christian or not I mean I'm not advocating I mean, most movies that get labeled as Christian are are pretty bad (laughs) pretty bad in a lot of ways but I think that stories that are telling the truth well are stories that surprise us Mm -hmm. that humanize people we've dehumanized or show us the ways in which this this doesn't work out like you would expect, but some other good becomes possible. And I think that, that that notion of surprise is one of the marks of good art, right? Like something happens that we've been told isn't possible to happen. yeah. And that is the work of God, right? Yeah. God making, making all things beautiful.
0: I think this is part of the progression that we see and even how the crucifixion is depicted over time. Yes. That, I mean, you look at, ancient crucifix Mm -hmm. imagery and the cross is small and almost sharp in a sense. Um, Jesus looks frail and it's no surprise that he dies. The surprise is believing that that person actually raised from the dead. Yeah, yeah. All the way to, like, I had a Lord's Gym t-shirt. Nice, yes. Yeah, and if you're familiar with the Lord's Gym t-shirt. Which does not get a mention in the book, but no, should have. No, it should absolutely should have, yeah. as <laughs> what not to wear. Um, Lord's Gym, it's like this huge, incredibly strong, muscular Jesus who is, like, doing a push-up with the cross on his back. It's like, no, 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 that guy never raised from the dead. He never died in the first place. It's right. so, right. like, yeah. who could have? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, and the cross gets bigger throughout the church's history that it it becomes more of like a weapon than it is something that Christ hung on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, there's so much to say in terms of how, how we represent, I think, I think for most of us and this, one of the chapters in the book here is about, about Good Friday. And I make the argument in there that we tend to think of the Jesus story as a narrative that ends with crucifixion, death is just the complicated part before the end. Yeah. Right? So Jesus dying is like, oh, no, but we're not really worried. We know how the story ends, right? <laughs> uh, and we've, you've probably heard or you've heard people talk about the Friday's, it, it's Friday but Sunday's coming yeah. sermon, right? So today it's bad, today it's dark, today there's death, but we know how the story ends, right? And, I mean, all the preachers in my tradition all the time would talk about, you know, I've read the back of the book, and we win, right? Revelation is a story about winning. Yeah. And it's about Jesus. He was meek the first time he comes. He was weak the first time he, he comes. But when he comes in the end, he comes with, with a sword. And the, the rivers do run with blood, and it's the blood of our enemies, not yeah. his blood, right? Yeah. But all of that radically misunderstands what the Gospels and what the Scriptures are saying, that that Friday is not something that happens before Sunday. It's not that Jesus dies and then a little bit later gets up from death. What Scripture's claiming is far more glorious than that, right? That Jesus dies and is really dead, right? I was at my mom and dad's house last Christmas, and I I mean, I've been there since then, but last last year at Christmas I was there, and my dad... Endlessly restless, so he was out in the garage that he built for himself after he retired, so he'd work, continue working, and some man showed up, I've never seen before, showed up because my dad was working on something for him, and he, the man whom I've never seen comes up to me, and he was like, I hear, I hear you teach theology, which is, trust me, you never want people to approach you with that. Like I've never had a good conversation follow, I hear you teach theology, right? It's always something... Really, it's always either about the rapture or about sexuality. But still, it's never a good conversation, like never a good conversation. But this one caught me off guard, right? Not because it was good, but because it was bad in an unexpected way. And he says, he's like, I need you to tell me, what was Jesus doing while he was dead? That's exactly how he phrased it. What was Jesus doing while he was dead? And I laughed and I said, he was dead. He wasn't (laughs) doing anything. I mean, that's literally what it means to be dead. He couldn't do anything. And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like on Friday he dies and then he's in the tomb. But what was he doing while he was in the tomb? He wasn't doing anything. He was dead. And he's like, ah, and he just walked away. (laughs) He's probably somewhere still praying for my soul. Um, He's like, oh, this theologian. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but here's, here's, here's the point. I think a lot of us have been taught, right, that we don't take the death seriously. He seemed to die, but really, right, really he was in hell beating up the devil, right? Yeah. That the, Jesus let it look like he was dying, but really he was doing something else, right? But, I mean, what the Gospels are talking about, what Scripture is talking about, is that he's dead. I mean, he's dead just as surely as anyone else has ever, ever been dead, and that God raises him from the dead and all the dead with him, in him. That's far more glorious, right, than the story that we tend to tell. So like our passion plays misrepresent what's actually in the, te- the text of scripture, and that, that, that's the story we have to get right, yeah. right. I mean, we've talked about a lot of other stories, but that's the story that we've gotta get right first before we can understand any other story. Yeah. Christianly.
0: Yeah. yeah, let's open it up to any questions that might be in the room. Um, don't ask me what Jesus was doing while oh, he was chasing. You've heard, heard my did. answer.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, how does an aesthetic Christology not just veer into a middle class, highbrow kind of thing, but actually help us to love our neighbor and especially the
1: poor? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I hope that's come up a lot tonight, but I think. The reason we turn to Jesus, and, and we all turn to Jesus from a particular place. I mean, I am who I am. I have the history I have. I live where I live. I can't see Jesus from every, every angle, right? And I can't say everything about Jesus that needs to be said. I can't say everything about Jesus that I want to say, much less everything that needs to be said. So in this book or a sermon or anything else I'm doing, I'm in no way claiming it's the last word on what needs to be said about Jesus. So that, I mean that's the first thing. But when we turn to Jesus, I think we turn to Jesus to see the truth and to let the, that truth kind of acclimate us to what's real, to what's actually going on in the world around us. And I, I, I'm convinced that the speed of our lives, the way we've been entertained, there are lots of factors, but that mostly we're mostly distracted. That most of our lives, we're not paying attention to much of anything. That our, we're doing a bunch of things at once, but nothing and no one really has our full attention. All right, that's very rare, right? To actually give something, you know, give a book or a movie or a person full attention. And I think that one way in which we start to make a difference on the ground, right? For what actually happens in the lives of people who are suffering. And by the way, Everyone is suffering, right? So this is one of the reasons that I think not, not, not everyone's suffering is the same, and I don't, I don't want to forget, you know, I, I don't want to say something cliched like the rich are poor too, right? That's not what I mean. But what I, what I mean is every person you meet, no matter who they are, every person you meet is suffering enormously. And you will never help until you notice Right. Simon Weil tells this incredible story, incredible story, about, and I think she wrote it, but I don't know for sure, but I know she's the one that I read it from, about the Holy Grail. You remember the, the knights are sent out to find the Holy Grail, and there are all these versions of the story, um, kind of which knight finds it and all this kind of stuff. But she tells the story that, that in the end, the, way, the only way you can get the Grail is because it's, it's kept by this old, weak, suff- like uh, sick man. And that most of the knights are looking for a young, kind of athletic, knightly figure to defeat in battle. Right? Much, much like myself. Right, yeah, someone, just picture Father Paul in full medieval armor. <laughs> and that, that's, that's the, what most knights are expecting. But in fact, the, the, the grail is guarded by an old, weak, dying man. And that the only way to get the grail is to ask the question, how have you suffered?
2: Mm.
1: The grail will not be given into, to you until you notice somebody and you care about how they've suffered, right? Now, sustaining that is enormously difficult, right? I mean, it's the hardest thing in life to, to do that. I mean, we can't even do it with ourselves, much less people we don't know. But I, I do think that's what art can do. Art can train us to notice the way people are suffering and to attend to it. And art can train us to notice the ways in which people are rejoicing and how to rejoice with them. Right? So I think if well, one way of putting it is the stories we're reading and telling, the movies we're making and watching, the buildings we're building, the dances we're dancing, the songs we're singing, like what should be happening is it should be making us aware It should be making us so that we notice things. Ah, I see the truth of that. Like, I recognize that. And in that recognition, I preached a couple weeks ago, not here, um, about the story of Ruth, which is, like, mind-blowing in terms of a narrative because it's one of the only stories in human history in which there are no antagonists. Mm. There's drama but no conflict. There are no bad people. If there is a bad person, it's God, right? Like the only only one who Naomi says about God, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But other than that, there's not a bad word spoken in in the little short story, right? But what happens in chapter two is Ruth, who's a Moabite, she's been forbidden, the book doesn't mention this, but those who know the Bible know that Moabites are cursed. They're not allowed to come into the promised land. And here she comes into the promised land. She's in the field with Boaz's workers, Boaz comes up to her and addresses her. She says, what are you doing? And he says, I know you, I know your story. You are Ruth, the Moabite. I know all the things that you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. And you realize that he knows her story. But what's astounding is, and I, I can't get into all the details right now, but what's astounding is he not only knows her story, he knows his own story. So at the end of the book, the elders of the city gather around and the, el- the, the women of the village name this child, Boaz's child, Ruth's child, Obed, which means worshiper. And it's the only time in scripture where the women of the village name, not the father, not even the mother or an angel, the, the women of the village name the child. And the, when, when they're gathered there, the, the elders of the village say, this is Boaz who comes from Perez who was the son of Tamar. Though I don't know if you remember the story of Tamar, but in Genesis, there's a a Gentile woman, Tamar, who who gets kind of brought into the family of Judah. One of Judah's sons marries her, and then he dies. And the, the boys will not marry her. And so she's now estranged. She's left for dead, essentially. And she dresses up like a prostitute and entices Judah into sleeping with her. And I mean, it's... You know, R-rated. This would never show up on pure flicks, but it's right there in the Bible. (laughs) And the this story is a story about the ways in which this woman Tamar becomes the future for Israel. And and Israel tells this story over and over again that there's no future for Israel without these Gentile women like Rahab, right? Like Tamar, like Hagar, who's the first woman to name God in Scripture. Mm And so on. I could go on forever about that. But here's the thing. The reason Boaz recognizes Ruth and does not oust her, doesn't leave her to starve, doesn't throw her, back, throw her out, is that he knows her story and he knows his own story. And he, because of that, he knows I wouldn't be here if it weren't for someone exactly like this. And he recognizes my grandmother is exactly what this woman is in front of me now. Right? That's what art can do. Like, it can train us to see. And it's incredibly hard um, to learn to see what's right in front of our faces. And I think the, that's why this kind of work is, is
0: worthwhile. And so much of the work we're doing is relearning how to see, yeah. which is maybe more difficult.
1: Yeah, and, and, and learning to notice the things you notice first, mm-hmm. right? Like learning to realize that the things that come to you first are the impressions you've been told to have you got to notice what you're sensing and then notice what's next, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do, what do I see if I keep looking? My initial response is this, but what if I keep paying attention? Like, what, what's on the other side of that kind of initial yeah. impression?
0: This is one of the reasons why I hate when Chris tells me to watch something or to read something, because I'm like, oh, if Chris is telling me to read this or watch this, like, there's got to be something here that like, I really need to pay attention to. <laughs> so I tend to watch the thing like this, like my octopus teacher, yes, yes. and I get to the end of it and I go, why the hell did Chris tell me to watch this movie? Again. There you go. <laughs> but then weeks later, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I do think that that kind of
1: attentiveness, Simon Bay again, prayer is attentiveness, mm-hmm. and attentiveness is prayer. Yeah. Like, you've got to pay attention. Like, how, how much of our lives is lived on autopilot, right? Where we, we're in the presence, you know, like, and scripture's full of these stories, right? So Jacob falls asleep, he has a dream, what is he, wakes up from the dream, what does he say? Surely I was in the house of the Lord and I did not know it, Yeah. right? Or, and, like, endless, like, examples of this kind of, like, here we are, God is here, and, and we're unaware. I like, we, we, don't, we yeah. don't understand what's right in front of our faces.
0: Yeah, somebody had a question here. Mm. And, you know dealing with
1: evil internally ourselves yeah. not, not in an oppressor versus oppressed sense does that question kind of make sense yes it does make sense and I, I, I'm hesitating only because I think the answer is complicated but I, I think I mean, it's there There are definitely layers to it I think one of the layers is there's a part of us that, that feels like we need that done for us right so part of gosh this is so hard to pull apart but part of Part of the reason you have the hero story is what is called magical thinking, which is there are problems in my life I cannot solve. So I need a God or a hero who will solve it for me. So I've got to get myself ready to get God or the hero to do it for me. Like, so part of the problem is we've thought of salvation mostly as stuff that is done for us. Not something we have to live out, not something we have to embody. Not, it doesn't really require all of me. It's salvation is something that is done for me
0: and purely spiritual
1: and yeah, right. It's purely spiritual, but it's also like independent of me. Ultimately, I just have to accept it. Right. I have to be willing to, to take it on. Right. Larry King interviewed Joyce Meyer. This was years ago and she was telling her story about being raised in a family with an alcoholic father who was abusive. And how before her father died, not long before he died, she was able to lead him to the Lord and so that he died as a Christian. And she was sharing this in ways that obviously brought her great comfort. And Larry King said, well, as a non-believer, that's not comforting for me because what that suggests is your God and the gospel you're preaching doesn't really care what we do with our lives as long as in the end we accept some message. We can live however we want, right? Right? And so one of the problems with kind of heroic thinking and magical thinking is we never take responsibility for the way that we actually live. Like Jesus will take care of that. So that's one level of the problem. Another level of the problem or layer of the problem is we we start to think that there are some things in my life that the goodness of God can't fix. So when things are really difficult or when there's something we really want we tend already, because of this larger myth we've believed, we tend to be ready to say, okay, I've got to suspend my Jesus following here because this won't get done if I don't do that, if I'm not willing to do things that are unchristian, right? So there's a sense in which we not only tend to think magically, you know, God's going to swoop in and fix this for me, or someone will, but when we start to think about taking responsibility, we're already thinking, I'll probably have to do things that aren't godly, to get it done. And this is, this is I, I mean, you see this in our institutions all the time. And I, I worked in Christian universities and Christian colleges and churches. And you can see behind the scenes, and any of you who've ever worked in settings like this, that churches and universities, and I'm sure the same thing is true like for Christian hospitals and, and anything else, there's this kind of split mentality. There's like the business side of things and there's the ministry side of things. So on the ministry side, we we want these virtues. But when it comes down to money, all of a sudden all of those virtues get bracketed out and we've got to do what we've got to do. Right? That's what comes from it, right? Like there are some parts of life Jesus is not going to touch. And and that those parts of life happen to be our bodies and our pocketbooks. Jesus deals with our souls, right? But this stuff, like the, the, the stuff of life, we tend to think, at the end of the day, it isn't about being Christian, right? It, it's about being willing to do whatever you have to do, right? To, so, you know, if, in, in, to go back to the institution, like, we'll do things that are deeply unethical, but make business sense, even though we're a Christian organization, and we'll justify it as, that's what business requires. It's just business. Right? That's what happens when you think like that. So, I mean, there are dozens of other layers there, but th- that's some of it.
2: Yeah. I really appreciate stand up comedy as an art. I think it's just yeah. one of those things. Yeah. Me too. Just, I mean, it's, it's so real and original. Absolutely. Uh, but so many comedians have come from a background of terrible pain and abuse.
1: Yes. And that's exactly right. And
2: they find a way Basically, to, to, to create this stand up comedy.
1: Yep. Yep.
2: Uh, would these heroes uh, be our own pain or struggling when it's uh,
1: played out? That's a great way of putting it. And I, I, I think the thing about comedy, it, it's hard to philosophize about, but one of the things that I, I feel is deeply true is, is what you just said that it arises from the experience of pain. And one of the reasons comedy is funny, when it's funny, is because it's surprising you about something you, one, they're talking about things you think they, shouldn't, they probably shouldn't be talking about. And they're talking about things in a way they probably shouldn't be. And that's what makes it funny, right? So I, I think you're absolutely hitting the, the nail on the head. And so one way of putting that might be, you know, the hero is a refusal to deal with our pain, and the saint does, right? I mean, that, that line where the hero's never honest about himself. That the saint is. One of my favorite novels is Godric, which is a Frederick Buechner novel about a saint who doesn't want to be a saint and hates that he's a saint and doesn't want anyone to think he's a saint. And he has this Reginald, who is his scribe, who's come to write his story, and Godric is always telling him these horrible, horrible, horrible stories about himself to scandalize Reginald so that he won't write the story. So Reginald wants to write this story about this saint who's you know, a man of miracles, and deep prayer, and faithfulness, and he, so he's trying to catch stories, and Godric is just telling him, the, like, the worst things he's ever done, and thought, and much of it may not even be true, like, he's just telling him stories to scandalize him, so that he won't write the story, and I think that, that's the nerve that you're touching, I think, I think that's exactly right. Before we stop, I, I found the A.R. Ammons poem, Busy. I wanted to read, read this, Speaking of comedy, I'll read this real quick and then, however, you want to wrap up. So, this is from a book called Glare. It's a book length poem, but this, these are just a few lines. These are like 10 lines from the poem. Sixty years ago, I used to hear every Sunday that Jesus was coming. The preacher wasn't specific, but said it could be any hour or minute, but certainly before next Sunday. <laughs> next Sunday would come, but no Jesus. And the preacher never seemed embarrassed. For his disaster quotient was high, was as high as ever. I love that. His disaster quotient was as high as ever. And cer- certainly something had to happen before next Sunday. Jesus was coming. The good people would be caught right up where they were, fishing or frigging, and the gro- graves were to fly open, the nice people winging away, and the bad folks about to get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that, that, I, that, that's what I grew up on, man, yeah. for sure. yeah. The good folks winging away. And the bad folks about to get it. The bad <laughs> folks about to get it. That's exactly
0: right. Uh, I thought there was one more question. I've got one. Yeah. Is so, it a good question? I think it's good. And I okay. think it's good to even wrap up with. Oh, oh nice. Okay. Give it to us, John. So I just uh, attended a conference here and Brian Zahn was speaking. Oh, yeah, cool. And he's tapping into a similar vein yeah. lately with beauty. And yep. yeah. He seems to think that the survival of Christianity really is wrapped up in
1: Mm. Would you agree with that? Or, or, and if you do, how do you think that impacts Yes, and no. Yeah, yeah. so this is a, a kind of in, uh, argument between friends about this point, between Brian and me. So the fifth chapter in this book, I think it's the fifth chapter, yeah, is called Beauty Will Not Save the World. <laughs> 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 right, which is, uh, Brian has a book, which everyone should read, by the way. Uh, Brian has a book called Beauty Will Save the World. And I, I mostly agree with what he's saying, but I want to add a couple of qualifications, with which I actually think he would agree. So you know, it's, it's, funly, it's a fun back and forth. Um, but what I'm arguing here is that beauty itself needs to be saved first. That beauty cannot save the world until beauty is saved. And interestingly, that line, um, beauty will save the world, comes from a Dostoevsky novel, mm-hmm. The Idiot, and it's often attributed to the character The Idiot. Prince Mishkin. But he actually, we don't know that he actually ever said it. So the way it shows up in the novel is that one of the other characters says to him, I've heard that you say, beauty will save the world. And then it shows up again multiple times in the novel, but never in a way that is kind of straightforwardly reliable. And and Dostoevsky all the time did this. And in in the world of memes, we love lines like that. Beauty will save the world. Another one is from, from Dostoevsky, Gets translated some version of my hosanna has passed through crucibles of doubt or through the crucible of doubt, right? Which is a c- glorious line, right? Almost like um, Leonard Cohen's, right? There's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in, right? So we live in a world in which those kinds of slogans mean really, really well. But Dostoevsky was way more complicated than that. So like that line about my my hosanna has passed through the crucible of doubt is actually said by the worst character in the novel. So he puts that incredible line in the mouth of somebody who's utterly unreliable. And the man who says beauty will save the world, or is said to have said beauty will save the world, is an idiot. And in the end, everyone associated with him ends in misery. Like the the, the book ends, spoiler again, sorry about all that. Like the end of the idiot is, he goes back to the insane asylum, and everybody whose life he's touched is in shambles. So I, I think the point of the novel is not that beauty will save the world, but that in, unless the beauty unless beauty is redeemed by Jesus, because the key for me in that novel is that they see the painting of Hans, Hans Holbein's painting of the dead Christ, right? Which is, I don't know if any of you have ever seen this painting, but it's, a, it's just a painting of the corpse of Jesus. And Dostoevsky himself personally was scandalized by it. And in the, in the novel, multiple characters are scandalized by it. But it's about facing the fact that our God is a God who dies and is dead. Is D-E-A-D, dead, right? And that, that recognizing that, that in, the, in the King James, there's this line in Proverbs, beauty is vain. Beauty is vain. And then in Isaiah, we're told that the suffering servant has no beauty that we should desire him. So I think the witness of scripture is, it's the beauty of Jesus that saves us. And the beauty of Jesus is, is not doesn't fit any of the standards of beauty in the, our world, right? And I think if we add that caveat, then once you fall in love with Jesus as the beautiful one, then yes, that is saving. But if you don't let Jesus redeem the beautiful, then what, will in your, what you're really saying, and I don't think this is Brian's point, but if, if you're not careful... The beautiful just becomes a name for whatever moves you powerfully.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whatever grips you or touches you. And if, if, we're, if we don't let that be redeemed, then all we're really saying is, I'm saved by my experiences. Like whatever is deeply moving for me is good for me. And I don't think Christians can say that. I think there are things that are deeply moving that might not should move us. And, and I think there are things we're not moved by that we should be moved by, right? And I think that, so a Christian account, I think needs that complicated. And again, I think Brian and I agree, but superficially we're saying it running in the opposite direction. Excellent question though.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'm not gonna read Brian's book. (laughs) Read it, no, please read it. At least read parts of it. Oh, lenses, with lenses. There you go. Yeah, awesome. Well, we need to wrap up, mostly because I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> I have to Our go lead prayer for the Order of St. Anthony in like 30 minutes. Um, so <laughs> if you've got nothing else going on at 9 p.m. tonight, jump on evening prayer with us. Um, but thank you, yeah, for, thank you for having this conversation. Uh, I didn't expect it to take any of those turns, but I'm glad it did. Um, are you able to hang out for a few minutes in case anybody like wants to get their book signed or something? Sure, absolutely. Cool. I'm going to keep mine um, unscathed. Okay. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Awesome. And thank you all for being a part of this conversation. Um, we'll have more of these in the future, where we might actually address some, like, interesting topics. I wasn't gonna say interesting, but interesting just, and relevant both at once. <laughs> uh, th- something a little more scandalizing than your book. I love okay. your book. Um, I think it's really important for us right now, and it's actually helping me form uh, a lot of what I hope are good ideas about our community and how we worship and what this means about our future. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank I you appreciate all.
1: It. Thank you for being here.